This episode of the Backside Ground Balls podcast is presented by The Performance Academy. For all of your athletic training needs, train with purpose at The Performance Academy. TPA houses a number of training resources from private baseball and softball instruction to team sports performance classes. Utilize advanced technologies like output sports, hit tracks, and TrackMan to take your game to the next level. On top of our elite staff and advanced technological capabilities, be a part of the TPA family and take advantage of the many resources our facility has to offer. Want to go to a game? How about a concert? How about going to see classical music? Whatever you're into, there's only one place to get your tickets. Thankfully, we are partnered with SeatGeek, the essential resource for live events. For any of your ticket needs, make sure you go over to SeatGeek.com and use the code BACKSIDEGROUNDBALL to receive $20 off your first purchase. Again, that is SeatGeek.com, promo code BACKSIDEGROUNDBALL to receive $20 off your first purchase. Powered by Riverside. And welcome back to episode 138 of the Backside Ground Balls podcast. Super excited to be back here on the pod. We have a super jam-packed episode today. My name is Trevor Powers, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Dan Galati. Dan, Thursday evening, we're heading into weekend two of the college baseball season. We've had some fun midweek matchups. How are we feeling? How's the outlook for the weekend ahead? Doing well, excited for another weekend of, of ball, and and uh, things are starting to roll now. You get your midweeks, opening day, everybody's excited. First weekend series, midweeks. Now we just keep on rolling. Next thing you know, we're gonna blink and we're gonna be previewing regionals. Oh yeah, no doubt about it. It's gonna fly by because everything time flies when you're having fun, as they say. But we have a super jam packed episode today, as I mentioned. We are going to dive into a little bit of the midweeks, um, obviously with the one in particular um, that is near and dear to our hearts. We're going to look ahead to some of the top series of this weekend, and specifically we're going to preview the TCU-UCLA series with Jamie Plunkett, who covers TCU sports for 247 Sports and, and has his own podcast called The Frogs Insider. We'll get to Jamie on the back end of the podcast, so for anybody looking for detail and the best on the beat down there in Fort Worth, um, wait around for the second half of this conversation, and and we'll get that to you. But first, obviously, Dan, midweeks are messy, right? I think as college baseball has grown and certain demographics of people have started to show up at the table with a lot of excitement and fanfare, I think a lot of times the new crowd seems to forget that, you know, A, early season baseball, as we talked about in the last episode, is messy. And B, it's called midweek madness for a reason, because you never know. And it does not matter. Every team across the country, I know there's one in particular that dropped one early. You never want to drop one early. But every top 25 team is going to lose a game that they shouldn't at some point in the season. And it's just a matter of understanding that, that's just college baseball, and that's what happens when you have 18 to 22-year-olds expected to play at their highest and peak uh, each and every week. 
Yeah, anything can happen in midweeks. Anything. Like, it's just one of those things where, you know, any team can go out and beat any team. And it's that way in baseball because of pitching, right? Like, you're running out, you know, a guy who's not good enough to pitch on the weekend for you. Um, And sometimes, depending on what mid-major it is, you've seen mid-major conferences game it to where their best guy might throw on during the midweek because if, you know, depending on if this guy they're trying to get looks draft or if they play a loaded um, midweek slate. So you could potentially have a guy who, especially early in the year, you're trying to figure it out. You're trying to figure out who's going to slot into that midweek role. Sometimes you're getting guys work that didn't get any work in the opening series of the year. So you might be going the old Johnny Holstaff that everybody loves those slog of midweek games that take seven and a half hours. So anything can happen. And, and uh, like you said, teams that are in the top 25 are going to lose to teams that you wouldn't think they're going, they should lose to. Um, and like this, this week, this week it happens. I mean, just the three that you have, that we have on the rundown here of, of Wake and Campbell's really good. Don't get me wrong, but you would think ECU would beat Campbell. Campbell beats ECU and then Dayton goes down to Nashville. And, and how many people would think Dayton was going to beat Vanderbilt at any point this year? You just you wouldn't expect it. Not that many. And and for those that do not know the results, we'll run through them real quick. A couple of the upsets that st- stood out uh, to us was obviously the one that will probably hit on the most here is number one, Wake Forest loses to UNC Greensboro four to three. Uh, UNCG is a pretty historically good program, but they are in a little bit of turmoil right now as their head coach stepped away months before the season. Um, so they are in an interim status. So it's not exactly what you imagine um, a team coming in and, and beating that caliber club. But we'll talk about Wake. As Dan mentioned, Campbell, who, I mean, you might not even call it an upset. It was a sold out crowd at Jim Perry Stadium. Um, they, ECU, everybody gets up for those games, the, the North Carolina rivalries. They win a close one, seven to six. That's just kind of good baseball. But on technicality, it's a, for some publications, it's an unranked team beating the number 11 team in the country. Um, and that number 11 team's got a big weekend ahead of them. So there's going to be a lot of good baseball ahead for them. And then you mentioned Dayton taking down Vanderbilt, and Vanderbilt had a multiple, multiple scares this weekend against Florida Atlantic. So is that something where maybe we should be a little bit more concerned about what Tim Corbin has in uh, Nashville right now, or maybe is it just midweek madness? And and I think that's one of the things that we'll definitely talk about. And then again, on the back end of the top twenty-five, Arizona State took down Kansas State, which again. You know, in terms of what is normal is probably a series that could be a a coin flip at any point in time, but it's still an upset by the standards. So let's start with the Wake Forest loss. Um, Obviously, I went into it a little bit about UNCG, good program. They could beat anybody at any given moment, and they proved that this week on Tuesday. But this is coming off a weekend where Wake Forest didn't exactly hit. They didn't show up on Tuesday. It's not like they rolled out their beast. They might have rolled out their fourth starter who did a really good job as a true freshman. And we heard good things when we were on campus about, but they didn't roll out their B lineup. It still had all the guys in there. It still had the, the team that's ranked number one in the nation. And people, maybe a little bit deeper on the Twitter sphere, are starting to talk and worry about Wake Forest's ability to hit. Because consistently over the first four games, they've been out hit by their opponents multiple times, and the depth of the lineup 
with guys losing guys like Brock Wilkin, Tommy Hawk, and then a couple guys that transferred and are now graduate students at some other big time programs seems to be at least not the best lineup that they've had in recent memory. Yeah. And and I think how much of this though, is, is it the fact that there is so much, you know, I think this is sometimes we do this thing where we build so much hype for teams that we almost create the panic ourselves because everyone sat around, including you and I, and talked about how good this wake team is. You know, we were on campus and you could feel the vibes of them believing that they had a team that could win, a you know, win it all this year. Every publication you look at consensus, number one team. So everybody built these expectations up. And then after four games, when it doesn't quite look like the team is living up to the expectations that everyone else put on them, on them, I think that's when people get worried, if that makes sense. Like to me, I I don't think that anyone in that room is panicked. I know Coach Walter won't panic. And Coach Walter sat there and told us that, look, this lineup's going to look different, right? We asked, what is this team going to, how is this team going to be different? What is the identity of this team going to be? And he said, look, we we kind of got some saltier veterans, some more, I think he used the term grinder guys, um, some guys who do things a little bit differently. It doesn't have quite outside of Kurtz. And I think he mentioned Seaver King when he said this, the lineup doesn't have, you know, the star power, but he really liked some of the things they were going to be able to do on the base pass, moving runners, putting the ball in play. And I think sometimes early in the year, like if you look at some of the, the offenses that have really kind of performed Georgia, Texas A&M, Georgia Tech, uh, some of these teams that have, have put up a lot of runs and, and offenses that are kind of in cruise control right now, they're hitting the ball out of the yard a lot. Those are offenses that are, are hitting home runs. And for Wake, they don't have a bunch of guys who are going to hit a, home, a, uh, a ton of home runs this year outside of Nick Kurtz. So until he really starts getting going and some of those other guys can start producing, yeah, this is kind of the offense and, and this is the type of team they are. To me, it's not a situation where I'm going to worry yet, especially four games in. Water finds its level. Yeah, I, I would say that there's no no question that it's not I, – I think you're 100% accurate in the in saying the fact that this is, seems like a lineup in a, in a Wake Forest team specifically that's going to take a little bit of time before their feel, they hit their stride. It's not exactly – for how much star power they have on the mound, this is a lineup that does not feature the same exact star power in their lineup outside of the two guys that are highly regarded in draft circles, right? It's a lot of very good baseball players that are going to understand their role and play to that, right? But, 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 we were there in the spring, right? And it was pitching dominant, right? And you can excuse that as... They have really good arms. They do a really good job. But when when we put it this way, that we were there for a couple of days, we saw a decent amount of bats, and and it was really one guy in particular that had a lot of success. And there was a lot of guys, a lot of swing and miss, a lot of soft contact. Um, that raises some eyebrows. But you you assume, hey, this pitching staff really good. What are we gonna? How much value are we gonna put in it? All this stuff like that. And again, when we talk about it, when they got to Omaha last year. This is the same offense that struggled against really, really high-level pitching. And when the park isn't smaller and plays to what they're trying to do to a certain extent, they have 
they seem to, at the very least, have a lot of home runs that now turn into flyouts as we get into these different scenarios. So this is a team that we are not making any conclusions on at this point in time. We would be fools to do that. But to not acknowledge the fact that there are more questions than the program typically has in a program that's known as Rake Forest because they are offensively um, very successful. Um, it'll be interesting to see how they bounce back this weekend against Dayton and, and moving forward. But I would imagine this is a lineup and maybe this is the way you would want it. And maybe coach Walter would say the same thing. This is a lineup that if you told him that they were hitting their stride in May, he wouldn't be surprised. And that's probably what you want when the weather warms up, ball starts to travel, these grinder types that are able to make the impacts in different ways they start to click at that point in time and and it starts to end up being a little bit more success. But as we obviously will have plenty of time to, to kind of dive in on Wake Forest and, and a ton of stuff that we want to get into today on the Vanderbilt side of things. Again, when we talk about those scares, like they had a couple scares against a really good Florida Atlantic team and then Dayton rolls in and, and kind of takes care of business. And, you know, this is a program that is as consistent as they come. I watched them play a little bit during weekend one and I was impressed, quite frankly. Like, I walked away. I told you this before we got clicked record. It's like I walked away from that program thinking, man, they got a good club this year. Is it a depth issue? Is it a holding on to leads issue? Those are all things that are going to come into play. But one through nine, their lineup looks good enough to perform. RJ Austin's a guy that I was super impressed in. Obviously, Jack Bolger's a guy that, that started the year with a home run, so it didn't take long for him to get on the board. But they've had four games through the season so far, and they haven't exactly looked like the the top team in, in the country that we've come accustomed to with this group. Yeah, similarly to Wake Forest. I mean, look, Vanderbilt's lucky they're not one and three. I think that's that's what we can say just right off the bat. Uh, they're, they're a left fielder falling down in the ninth inning away from being one and three. Um, they... <sighs> Gosh, <laughs> they're equally as close to being five and zero, though. And I think what's concerning when you look at it, and I don't, I'm, I don't want to use the word concerning. I think what you can point to when you look at kind of when when everyone raises an eyebrow by just if you're box score watching is, well, they have five relievers who, in four innings, three innings at less, three and change or less, have given up multiple runs like that. Right there, just you can stop and start there because, as to your point, and you watched them a little more than I did this weekend. The offense is really good, and what did we? I remember us talking last year, early in the year, about what's what's up with Vanderbilt. You know, they don't look as crisp, and it's like, well, they they're offensively they're not very scary, but that they have the pitching, and, and you know that Corbs is going to construct the lineup. You know, we even had a conversation of maybe are they going to change the way he goes about constructing lines. Well, guess what? This year they have nine guys who can swing it. And and offensively they're going to be just fine. And I think you 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 trust that pitching that pitching staff, the guy running that pitching staff, and that program to kind of figure out the roles in the bullpen. And once they figure out those roles in the bullpen, um, I think this is going to be a really good team. I mean, early in the year when you're trying to figure, you know, we talk about this all the time when you're trying to figure out what guys can do what and what situations, things can get a little weird. Um, and, and look, if it continues this way, they're not going to be very good. I just don't see the bullpen continuing to kind of be a sieve for yeah. 56 games. 
One of the things you realize about bullpens is a lot of times is it's young arms that step up later in the year. And if anybody yep. recruits young arms that can step up later in the year at a high level, it's Vanderbilt. So you just trust the fact that Brownie and, and company are going to get those guys dialed in and figure out. And once they establish those roles of the, the 98s to 100s and high school arms that have never handled a college workload that come May, start to figure it out and rein it in. And, and a guy roll, you know, Vanderbilt's the classic example of they roll a bullpen arm out with a 570 ERA freshman who's walked the world and, you know, they ride him through a regional and you're like, wow, that guy just punched out nine through four innings. And that was really impressive stuff. That's that's what programs like that are able to do because they recruit at a high level. A couple other interesting uh, results from the midweek. We had Austin P. They swept a midweek two game set with Mississippi State. Um, interesting fall from grace for for the 2021 national champions. Um, and then Louisville, who had a rough season last year, starts off this season 0-3 after a midweek loss to Xavier. And that's a program that, at least as of two years ago, nobody ever thought was going to fall off. And it looks like they're in a little bit of a rough patch here. So just a quick hitter, Dan, before we get into the weekend look ahead here. Uh, what are some of your thoughts on on that specifically? Yeah, I, I feel like I said this to you before we clicked record. I feel like the Mississippi schools are kind of cursed ever since mm-hmm. they won national championships because Ole Miss is sitting there and they're they're also uh, two and three. And I think it's for Mississippi State. It's it's been on the mound um, just completely uh, for the past since they won the national championship. Uh, they've had injury issues on the mound. They haven't been able to get guys out. They walk a ton of people, um, and they just they haven't been able to put it together. It's just kind of been um, – it almost feels like it's getting to the point now where uh, they kind of know that they're a disappointment. I don't, I don't know how to say that without being offensive, but, like, they know that everybody's kind of looking at them like uh, – this isn't the Mississippi State we expected, and you're you're just waiting for them to lose in, in big moments late in games, and they just continue to do it. And a lot of it has to do with just pitching. Um, you know, I, I, again, early in the year, you're not going to jump ship, but it, it's definitely become a trend now. When it's we're three years into this, and 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 it's kind of looked the same ever since they won in Omaha, and then on the Louisville yeah. Louisville slide, that's to me a little bit. I almost want to say worse off because to me, Louisville just doesn't, I don't know. They just don't look good. It's not good. They don't look good. I feel like it's a program that's falling from grace for some reason. Um, I can't really put my finger on it, but because they, they still recruit pretty well. I, I just, they're like, they're not, they're losing to teams that aren't very good. They've been doing it for that for a couple of years now. I don't know what's happening out there. Yeah, it'll be an interesting deep dive to to look through and potentially find out where where you could identify the problems um, and and trying to find out uh, where that is. Uh, but as we look ahead to the weekend, obviously there's a lot of interesting stuff in the midweek. But the weekends is where the money's made. It's where everybody enjoys college baseball so much more. We got Friday night guys going at it. We got a lot of good baseball to look ahead to this weekend, and a couple in particular that we want to dive into. As I had mentioned, we're going to preview the TCU-UCLA series at TCU with Jamie Plunkett, so stick around for that if you're looking for the details on that. But a couple other series that we have our eye on and round-robin invitationals is 
Number 15, UNC, plays a home-and-home with a uh, Fayetteville sandwich um, in between with East Carolina. So they're going to be in Chapel Hill tomorrow night or tonight after this airs. They're going to be in Fayetteville on Saturday, and then they're going to be in Greenville. Sold-out crowd at at, uh, Boschmer Stadium in Chapel Hill. Sold-out crowd in Greenville. I'm sure there's going to be a really good turnout in Fayetteville. It's going to be a lot of fun. Those Carolina schools, they get up for each other. We are going to be in attendance tomorrow night, knock on wood, that the rain holds off. We've got the Jacksonville College Baseball Invitational, where number 14, Virginia, number 18, Iowa, Auburn, and Wichita State are going to be playing a round robin. That'll be an interesting one to file. And in the Kubota College Baseball Series, uh, we got that heading in Globe Life Park, which, again, as we see a lot of times with uh, college baseball, is those series that kickstart in Globe Life Park. We got Arkansas, and in everybody's favorite matchup of the weekend on a Friday night, we got Arkansas battling it out with Oregon State. That's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to get to see if Hagen Smith can return back to form after his clunker and start one. Oklahoma State, who's obviously a historically pretty good program, had a rough first weekend against Sam Houston State, losing the series. And then the Michigan Wolverines are coming south, and they have have kind of a barn burner beginning of the year after this. They head out to California, so it's going to be a little tough stretch here, and they could have a good weekend, quite frankly, and go 0-4. So, Dan, what are some of the main things that you're looking forward to this weekend as we start to preview these series? Well, I think it's just more data points, right? Like you're just getting now you're getting three more games from a lot of these teams that you you know you you had expectations for. Um, some of them that maybe underwhelmed, or, or um, there are some teams out there that surprised you in week one, and now you get more data points. And, and you just talked about some really good series. I mean, ECU and Carolina, uh, ECU fan base is probably the best one in this area, um, just by the environments that it seems like they always cause whether it's a a midweek sellout at Campbell whether it's sellouts all weekend against Carolina um so that's going to be really fun especially because Carolina's got off to a great start um obviously they revamped their entire pitching staff and I still think there's some things that you want to see on the mound some guys who are trying to prove some things a bunch of new guys uh, 17 pitchers they brought in this year so that's going to be a really fun series especially when you have a guy who's potentially trying to pitch into his way into the first round at ECU in uh, Trey Yasevich. Um, so that, that's going to be an unbelievable series. And then some of these these round robins that, that you touched on, um, Arkansas and Oregon State is going to be like – that's probably the must-watch game of the weekend just because you see some of the star power in, in, in both clubs who you feel like are kind of uh, – slotted in for Omaha so again it's it's just more early season baseball I'm sure there's going to be some more wacky things that go on there's going to be some guys who continue their hot starts and and um, to me that's kind of what's the most fun early in the year almost is seeing some of the individuals especially on the offensive side of the ball uh, who get off to these unbelievable starts and and they kind of start to solidify themselves when they continue to repeat it you think back Tommy White two years ago where it was just like he just kept hitting homers, and then he he, he worked his way into being a household name as a freshman. Um, so, for me, that's really kind of the the most exciting part about these these earlys. Also, always seeing you know different logos match up out of conference. I always enjoy. Yeah, the out of conference matchups are always a lot of fun. Um, being able to kind of see these teams like you know, where they take one team from every big power program. I mean, the fact that Auburn's going to be in Jacksonville with two ranked teams, if you told me Auburn's a team that goes 3-0, and like, 
nobody would be surprised because they're, I mean, really since, since Butch Thompson's been there, they are a absolutely like an Omaha almost on an annual basis level club. So being able to see that and see those groups of, of guys and, and head down there to Jacksonville where they're able to, to kind of push and, and maybe go three and oh, so I'll be intrigued by how that one unfolds. And then obviously the matchups between number 14 and, and Iowa or number 14, Virginia and number 18, Iowa is going to be a lot of fun to see just because of the fact that you have two ranked clubs, you're obviously going to get to see some really high caliber arms in those series and being able to kind of make sure that, you know, we get a good sample size. As you said, I'm super excited for the UNC game. Obviously I mentioned that we're going to be on site there tomorrow, which is going to be a lot of fun. And again, sold out crowds. I think that's, again, we go back to the pageantry of why everybody loves college sports, right? Is the, the rivalries, the pageantry, the idea of the fact that, you know, um, you're going to get a sold out crowd on a fe- on February 23rd in Chapel Hill and being able to, to kind of get that kind of buzz around a college campus, around two ranked programs in a state that loves their baseball and loves their colleges specifically. You know, everybody says Carolina is a wine and cheese crowd, which will be fascinating to see um, how they respond to that and uh see where where they go from there and and if that crowd comes out and is in you know just good spirits but that Hagen Smith versus Oregon State lineup that Oregon State lineup they absolutely bang right now obviously led by Travis Bazana and he's had a great start to the year they have some young pups that are are playing really well up to this point so it'll be fascinating to see if he can bounce back i guess it would be the epitome of Hagen Smith to go dominate um the weekend after laying an egg, that would be yeah, the epitome sure. of his series in his career. Are we just, I know he's going to be on the mound tomorrow. So it's kind of a, it's a completely hypothetical question, but if Brody Breck's not on the mound, are we sure that I was better than Auburn? Cause you look at the right. Like, he- I, I, like if Brody Breck's not on the mound, which I know he's going to be on because Auburn plays Iowa, but are we sure that I was better than Auburn? I don't know. I that's mean, a, you know what that's I mean? like, fascinating. I, it's a it's a completely hypothetical, and 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 people will tell me it's SEC bias, and it probably is. But like, I I just I don't know. I know it was Eastern, it was Eastern Kentucky and UAB, so like it's not all that impressive. But I, I there's a number next to Iowa's name, so that so you say, oh well, Iowa must be better. But I, like you said, I wouldn't be surprised if Auburn like if Auburn wins that. I'm not going to flinch if Auburn sweeps that weekend series not even for a second not even for one second i mean again we we blink each and every year and we look at the midway point in auburn's 12th in the sec and then we blink and then they're in omaha and you're like how but like (laughs) again it's it's early in the season so we're not expecting june auburn tigers to show up but i mean you know, off the top of my head, I'm, I don't have it pulled up in front of me, but I think they've been at least at the two of the last three Omahas, and that's something that not any program really could say outside of maybe LSU's of the world. And Florida. I don't think they have. Like really recently, it's been kind of a like they've been the most consistent Omaha contender each and every year. So fascinating, fascinating to look at and just seeing. I, I would love to see what Oklahoma State team shows up. Um, again, they pitched it reasonably well in weekend one, which was is not exactly what you think of when you think of 
um, cowboy baseball down there in Stillwater. They kind of bang a lot. That park plays small. Everything that it comes with, if they pitch it all year with that lineup, you know those guys are going to show up. Uh, Nolan Schubert and – He's a stud. He's not going to put up a 250 slash line uh, for the whole year. We understand that, but it'll be fascinating to see if that lineup can come up. I mean, because that's the type of team that you don't want to run into in a weekend like this because next thing you know, they hang up 14 runs on you. You freaking bleed in your bullpen, and then you got to go into Sunday and play somebody else pretty good. So that'll be fascinating. But again, as I mentioned when I was kind of going through the initial talk, credit credit to whoever's in charge of the Kubota college baseball series for giving us the Friday night matchup in these, yeah. in these round Robins, they always try to avoid throwing everybody to the wolves. And then you miss an opportunity to see two high caliber arms battle it out of Friday night guys. So being able to get Hagen Smith out there and being able to watch him go left on left against Travis Bazana, that's what we watch college baseball for at the end of the day. So credit to them for lining that up. I would have loved to see Brody Brett go on Friday against Virginia, but we don't win them all, right? That's completely understandable. But just finding ways to kind of make it creative and make it enticing and obviously, you know, making sure that people are tuned in on those Friday night games. Yes. And just real quick to your Oklahoma State point, and I know we got to – we're running out of time here, but – they really were just pitching away. I mean, they. I felt like they had a, a favorable – I remember talking about it. I thought they had a pretty favorable draw in, in, in the regional last year. I mean, Dallas Baptist is always very good, and they ran into the buzzsaw that was Oral Roberts, who was just kind of on that run to Omaha, and, and nothing was probably going to beat them. But like, when you looked at it, it was like offensively they're better than all these teams. They just didn't pitch it. Yeah, so I would if agree Oklahoma with that. State pitches it, they, they could very well – I mean, again, be hosting a regional in that park where ball flies and they 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 swing it at home. They could be a team that's around at the end of the year. Very much so. Very much so. But obviously, we got a lot of fun baseball. We'll be covering uh, the weekend that is. We'll be coming back to you with with uh, review content in the early week next week to talk about these series some more. But we're going to preview TCU UCLA with Jamie Plunkett after this break from our sponsors. We are super excited to announce that we are now partnering with Routine Baseball for all of your clothing needs, athleisure, the sickest baseball gear you can get. We're talking hoodies, shorts, sweatpants, sunglasses, hats, any baseball style you can imagine. Routine Baseball has it, and we are now partnered with them. All you got to do is go to routine.com backslash backside ground ball. That's a mouthful, so I'm going to say it again. It's routine.com backslash backside ground ball and check out all the different options they have. You will receive 10% off your order today. One more time, routine.com backslash backside ground ball and get 10% off your order today. And welcome back to the Backside Ground Balls podcast. As previously promised, we have Jamie Plunkett, who covers TCU sports for Horn Frog Blitz and 24-7 Sports. Jamie, this is your second time on the podcast. Thank you for joining us again. Man, I've been checking my email pretty much daily waiting for the invite back. I didn't know how the College World Series preview went, but fellas, it's really good to see you guys and, and talk ball again. I'm just glad baseball's back, man. Oh, so are we. So are we. It's the best time of year, and... And we had some, I mean, we spent the last 25 minutes talking about it. Um, You know, (laughs) just this 
the how the football crowd comes into the baseball and how much college baseball has grown and how it's changed. But this is where people like us that are just true college baseball nerds, we thrive. And I will tell you, you don't have to check your email. You got the invite. If you find out <laughs> when we're recording and you just log on, we'll have a conversation to go and we will just roll from there. So that's cool with me now that we got that out there. <laughs> well, I mean, we already did the podcast before the podcast. So if anytime you guys want, just hit me up for sure. Always. I love that. So first weekend, uh, you kind of gave us some insight that I wasn't exactly familiar with, but from box score reading and box score scouting, it seemed like TCU baseball had a rough go against Florida Gulf Coast. Why don't you explain to our listeners maybe the the game within the game that was going on uh, last weekend that might have led to some of those closer games than everybody originally anticipated when top five team in the country was playing host to a to a mid-major program. Yeah, you know, it's uh, first of all, shout out to Florida Gulf Coast because their program's come a long way since they got things up and running in 2003. And some of the bats that they have in that lineup this year, uh, Ian Farrow specifically, the kid who was there in 22 and then transferred to Miami last season. I mean, he's he can swing it and he did all weekend. So props to Florida Gulf Coast and what they're putting together because they've got a really cool program building down there. But it was uh, interesting. You think Fort Worth, Texas, and you think, oh, it's nice and warm. It's probably 75 and sunny, and it was the opposite, right? It's like in the 30s all weekend. The wind was blowing out at Lupton, which I think we talked about last year, is not the way that that stadium normally plays. So it played a lot more like you would see a you know Texas Tech Stadium or even Wake Forest Stadium play, where it's kind of matchboxy. And so Florida Gulf Coast got, uh, to their credit, took all the advantage of the wind blowing out to to right field and center all weekend to hit some of their home runs but you know TCU did the same thing a lot of power in the lineup this year Peyton Tolley got his first year uh, first home run of the season which obviously was kind of the crown jewel in the transfer portal for the Horn Frogs and they managed to work around some starting pitching that had questions entering the season and didn't really answer any of those because none of those guys made it out of the fourth inning. So uh, it was a nice um, opportunity to see the Frogs play, to work through some of the kinks that they still have uh, in, in the pitching rotation and um, still managed to gut it out and end up three and zero on the weekend. You know, I think that's probably the most impressive thing is when you look at, uh, you know, Arkansas dropping a game to JMU, Wake losing a midweek to UNCG, uh, you know, Vandy's two and two right now. The fact that the Frogs are sitting there at four and zero in and of itself, I think, is pretty impressive, uh, considering that they played a 42 win team, top 60 RPI team right out of the gate. And then, you know, their midweek was against Texas State, who was a region, you know, a one win away from making the Super Regional last year or so. You know, I I think it's so interesting. Trevor and I have kind of probably beaten a dead horse at this point about how early in the year there's a little bit of sloppiness. And whether that's because, you know, unlike Major League Baseball, you don't get six weeks of spring training leading up to it. You know, it's kind of a quick turnaround and you're, you're focused on getting pitchers ready. I'm curious, though, we talk about some of these World Series teams coming off a of World Series, Kirk Sarlu's <clears throat> second year. What's kind of the vibes around the program with the expectations of, hey, you're a top five program. This is a program that was in Omaha last year, and everybody kind of expects them to be back. Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know that much has really changed in the expectations department because where Jim Schlossnagel got this program before uh, Sarlos became the head coach was already kind of there. And, you know, they had five Omaha trips under their belt in the last 10 years before Kirk took over the job. And so the reality I think of his situation was let's just keep the boat going in the right direction and see how we can build even further because they've made the top four 
they've never made the final weekend in Omaha. And so realistically, this program's final goal is to get to that final weekend and, and win a national championship. Um, so getting to Omaha last year, I think, was great from an experience standpoint because nobody on the roster had ever been, which was pretty crazy considering where TCU had, had been the last few years. Um, and so now it's more about, hey, we got a taste. We know what to expect. Now it's time to go and actually finish the job. Um, so, so from an expectation standpoint, I don't know that anything's really changed a ton because that's always been the goal and that will always be the goal, I think, for TCU. So my question then to, to kind of stray off of that is you're driving home from the park April 30th. They just dropped a tight one to Texas. Kirk Sarlos is in his first year. There's kind of some probably some questions of how the transition's going to go from what we've deemed a national powerhouse and a consistent Omaha contender to where we are sitting here today on February 22nd and how much has changed. How has it been being around that program for how much has changed? Because if you scroll through from March 1st on, there are only four losses the rest of the way, all the way through Omaha, and that's including the Big 12 tournament, that's including regionals, super regionals, and then obviously a trip to Omaha. So a lot has changed since that May 1st date. That's probably when we're going to circle that that big transition happened in Coach Sarluce's first year. But what's it been like around that program since that day? Well, I think um, for the first half of that season last year, which was Kirk's second year, by the way, he he took over in twenty two. Um, which that's right. Yeah. It's fine. It's it's fine. It was it was a, a relatively underwhelming year by TCU standards. So there were there were some questions coming into the second year about the transition, and um, <clears throat> you know, I think that there was some interest in you know how his hiring came about because he loves TCU he's always wanted to be here and the players really stood up for him uh, after Schlossnagel went to Texas A&M and said we don't need a national search we've already got our guy and props to Jeremiah Donati TCU's athletic director for listening and saying okay this then this is the direction that we're gonna go um, but I think the 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 going back to last year the challenge for TCU the first half of the season wasn't, hey, we're not talented enough. Hey, we don't have the pieces in place to make a run. It was, hey, we still haven't figured out quite how to put it all together yet. And so you have weekends where you you know you look at that schedule and you say, wow, they got swept by West Virginia. That's a tough one. They dropped a weekend series to UNC Wilmington. What happened there? And it really was like a couple of months of just figuring out what everybody's roles were, especially in the bullpen. And I think the challenge for Sarlos was, Hey, I am the head coach. I've been the pitching coach for nine years, but now I'm also the head coach. How do I navigate both of those roles and responsibilities? And I think it took him a while to kind of get his feet under him from that perspective and really figure out, Hey, this is what I need from my assistants to, to manage the pitching staff. And this is what I need to be responsible for as a head coach, which is why you saw him go into the off season and hire a pitching coach this off season. He brought in Dave Lawn from Arizona guys got as much <clears throat> coaching experience as years I've got on this planet. And so he's got, you know, they have 50 years. I, I made this joke with uh, them the other day. I said, you guys have 50 years of coaching experience between the two of you. They did not like me saying it in that way. Um, but the reality is, is that I think he recognized where some of the gaps were last year managed to fill them pretty well the back half of the season as they got that run going 
but also took the offseason to take a step in the right direction and address that more permanently with the hiring of Dave Lawn. So this, the program is growing under him. It's progressing in the right direction. Even though the expectations were already incredibly high, I think he's checked every box every step of the way to make fans and people feel confident that things are still uh, where they should be and, and going in the right direction. You, you mentioned <clears throat> Dave Lawn there, Lawn there a couple times, and, and you, you kind of – talked about how the biggest question going into this year was the the, the starting pitching. And, and I remember we talked last year and it was a little bit of a question mark heading into Omaha's is did they have enough pitching to win a tournament like that? So in kind of what have you heard or, or, or seen around the program? What are kind of some of the fixes that the, that they're looking for and what guys are they kind of looking for to, to step up? Obviously, as you said, Peyton Tolley's kind of the, the crown jewel of the, the transfer class. I know he's a two-way guy. Um, what else are they – you know, what are their other options on the mound? So Cole Klecker, I think, is the first name that got, got penciled into the weekend rotation. When you when you go out as a true freshman and you win 10 games, that's a big deal. Um, and so he was such a stabilizing force in the weekend rotation last year that I went back and looked. They used eight different arms. Eight different pitchers got weekend starts last year for TCU. They used six different weekend rotation combinations last year, which just – that causes its own amount of chaos, right? Like you guys have both been around baseball long enough to know that if guys don't know their roles from week to week, that can cause a lot of challenges just upstairs in your head. I don't know what I'm going to be doing. I don't know when I'm going to be called upon. That can be hard for guys. And so I think one of their goals this year was to – establish enough of an open competition to say, we're going to let guys go out and earn it. They're going to tell us what their roles are by the way that they work this fall. Um, and we're going to give enough guys the opportunity to where we can also kind of identify what key bullpen roles will go to what guys before the season starts. And so you saw them this, this fall and in the spring, they stretched out 10 guys. And basically they said, Klecker's the one that's penciled in either Friday or Saturday the rest of the nine of you, you got to tell us who it's going to be. And that ended up being Peyton Tolley and Zach Morris, the Arkansas transfer. Um, but the advantage of that, in my mind, is you've still got all of these other guys that you've already stretched out for midweek games, for long relief opportunities in the bullpen. And so there's an easy kind of mix and match there that can happen if things aren't working out in the rotation. So they've got Tolley going on Fridays, Klecker on Saturdays, and then Morris on Sundays because they wanted to split up the two lefties in the in the rotation. And you've also got West Virginia transfer Ben Hampton, who is now your midweek starter. He was a first-team All-Big 12 pitcher last year. He's made 41 conference starts. That's a pretty salty Tuesday guy. Uh, and he went out and went uh, five innings, gave him a, a really solid start against Texas State this week. Not to mention Louis Rodriguez, who was banged up and didn't pitch in the postseason last year, but he's got a nasty cutter. He's coming back for his sophomore year. You've got a kid in Cademan Parker who was out last year with Tommy John, who's now back and and uh, ready to ramp up. You've got uh, Zach Coyer, a kid from McLennan, uh, which is the same junior college that Cole Fontenelle came from last year, TCU's first baseman who had such a great college World Series. So you know uh, another kid from from that uh, pipeline, and uh, you've got some freshmen in the mix too. Who uh, we saw what some of TCU's freshmen did last year. These guys are going to have an opportunity to grow up, but there's a name Mason Bixby as a kid to watch because he's got absolutely lights out stuff. He's touching 96 on the gun, you know, as, as a senior in high school and he ended up on TCU's campus. So you're, you're excited about some of the younger pieces. They feel like they've got the depth this year to manage some of those mid season challenges a little bit better. And then back of the back of the bullpen, 
you still got your tall lefty Ben Abelt to come in and just shut the door whenever you really need it. So I think they're much more confident about their pitching season this season than they were a year ago, simply because of the depth. Well, depth <clears throat> is, is so important. You see it year after year, especially in college baseball, you know, it can get, it can get long. And if you don't have enough depth, it can, it can make the season feel like it's, it's six months long. Um, yeah. Just a, a guy that I loved even last year. And you mentioned him there at the end, Ben Abel, was there any, conversations of stretching him out at all or were they just was he penciled into the back end from the start he was one of the 10 guys that they stretched out to give that starting opportunity to he and dave lawn spent the majority of the fall working on a changeup um because we've seen we've seen his fastball we've seen that absolutely disgusting slider from his weird three quarters left-handed arm slot that just nobody can figure out right the thing looks like it's got a horizontal movement of eight feet or something like that but he needed that third pitch to really get through lineups more than once and so they've spent a lot of time working on that changeup. He's he flashed it a little bit in the weekend series against Florida Gulf Coast, and again Tuesday night he got the save against Texas State. Um, but when you have a guy like that, and I think there was so much depth of guys who have had starting experience, I think the safe move that Sarlos went with was to put him back at that closer spot. I personally. Would not be surprised to see him starting on the weekend by the end of the year because he is legitimately, I think, one of their best three or four arms. Um, But right now, for the way that this thing is constructed, the best thing that you can have is a guy like him who's going to be your shutdown guy when it matters most. And you already know that you've stretched him out. So if you really need him before the ninth, which they did on Tuesday, they called on him with, I think, two outs in the eighth that's not a problem because you've already stretched the guy out. So he gives you some versatility on the back end. But again, would not be surprised if he was starting before the year was over. I'm fascinated about uh, Zach Morris and his transition to the rotation because, I mean, Arkansas at this point in time is about as deep as it gets on the mound, and the opportunities are are few and far between for a guy even with good stuff like Morris has. But I remember when they were on that really impressive run during what was the 22 season, he was a big piece in that bullpen and he pitched a lot of big innings and and when I was going through the stuff and and following TCU this weekend I was like that's a name right there like I remember seeing him come out struggled a little bit last year the swing and miss stuff actually ticked up last year but the ERA on the whole went down talk a little bit about his transition to TCU first and then obviously to the rotation and what they're hoping to get out of him as a guy who started on Sunday um, this past weekend. Well, the joke I've made a couple times, so it's probably not funny to people who have heard it before, is that Morris got really tired of pitching against TCU last year because I think <laughs> I think his ERA against TCU was like 10 or 11. And so he had to face him in the first weekend of the season. He had to face him in the Arkansas Regional, and neither experience went very well for him. But he's he's a kid who, like you mentioned, in 2022 was, was really dealing for most of the year. And I think that for for guys in this age range, a lot of times a change of scenery can do so much for a guy's mental. And we saw that from him this fall. I mean, uh, Sarlos referred to him multiple times. I don't know if you guys hear the train in the background, but that's just a thing that happens here. Um, <clears throat> Fort Worth has train tracks all over the city. It's ridiculous. But anywho, um, he needed a change of scenery, and he got one in Fort Worth. And I think um, the opportunity to just be one of the guys and – you know, figure out what your role is going to be rather than have the pressure of, oh man, you were really great last year. 
uh, you weren't, or two years ago, you weren't as great this year. Now we got to see you take that next step. You have to step it up. There's maybe some external pressure there. There's none of that really here in Fort Worth for him. Um, and he was a very steady presence on the mound for TCU all fall. He was one of the guys that got through the lineup most consistently, which is a pretty potent lineup, I would say. Um, and so he did enough to beat out really Ben Hampton, I think was the guy he was competing with most um, for that final Sunday job. He, like you said, he struggled a little bit on Sunday, but he also showed some really good moments. I think his second inning and his fourth inning specifically were really strong. Uh, the way he was locating his fastball, the run that his fastball had, I think was looking a lot more like 2022 Zach Morris. And if he can, if he can get that more consistently present, I think he's going to have a very solid year in the back end of the weekend rotation. You mentioned that he he had he showed the flashes and uh, you mentioned before none of those guys got out of the fourth inning. In your opinion, who who would you like to see kind of take the step forward this weekend against UCLA out of those guys in the rotation? I'm looking I'm looking for Klecker to to be the Klecker of 2023. Um, I think <clears throat> Saturday was one of the days that were was particularly unlepton like as far as weather was concerned. So he. Cruz really through the first two innings had no problems at all and then gave up three home runs, uh, one of which was kind of a cheapie in the third inning and pitch count ballooned, got a little bit away from him. And you guys know early in the year, you're not going to ask a guy to go 90, 100 pitches. And so I think he was at like 65, 70. And so they just called it rather than putting him back out there for the fourth inning, not knowing what could happen if he threw 20, 25 more pitches to say, all right, we're going to kind of stop it here, go to the bullpen and see what they can do for us. So I think he's a guy who on a more normal weather weekend at Lupton can kind of get back to his old self and find a groove and eat up some of those Saturday innings. You know, that's that's such an important aspect of of weekend pitching is having a guy who can go deep on Saturdays to, to allow your bullpen to stay fresh for Sundays. So that was the that was part of the intent of running him out there on Saturdays. And I think we see him get back to that this weekend. When you when you talk about Klecker and, and kind of I guess from from the draft standpoint because I'm very into to that side of things and, and evaluating these guys from that perspective, obviously one of the things that probably comes up as I guess what you could deem a question mark for him is the swing and miss stuff. Um, I think we talked about it a little bit off air, but what kind of strides from what you've maybe you've heard, even seen, is he trying to make? I, I mean, he's I think he's always going to be more ground ball than than swing and miss on the fastball. That's just kind of that comes with the territory but we saw him strike out nine and seven innings against indiana state so it's definitely there what are some of kind of the ways that that he's trying to to develop as a guy who was a freshman all-american and pitched really well but to get better this coming season and, and be the best form of himself i think the the off-season work was on his off-speed stuff and so improving the slider which we saw uh was a very plus pitch for him at times last year and then building on the changeup as well and just working on changing sight lines for hitters. And so I think a lot of the times when he would start to get hit and get hit a little bit harder last year, everything was kind of coming in at the same plane. And so cha- move, moving pitches around, locating within the zone a little bit more precisely, I think was uh, how he tried to work this offseason. And like I already mentioned with Dave Lawn, the fact that TCU has a dedicated dedicated pitching coach who's in every bullpen, who's sitting down with these guys midweek and having some of these conversations, not to mention new analytics guy, Colton Lovelace, who's absolutely just a stud, right? And so those two additions to the staff, I think 
have helped the pitching more than any other aspect of the team because they can sit, they can spend the time and sit down with each of these guys individually and say, hey, if you if you tweak this, if you do this, this, and this, you're going to see things go in a great direction for you. All of the pitchers have bought into that kind of coaching and those analytics, and it's it's been really. It, it, I think we're really close to seeing kind of the payout of all of that. I'm going to clip that comment about Colton, send it to him personally <laughs> through text. So, because uh, we have not, and post that, that on our social media too, because I think more people need to learn about Colton Lovelace well, we and what he brings. Him up too much. We want him to stay at TCU for <laughs> a That's while. That's true. So. We'll keep it under wraps. We, I'll just okay. send that to him personally then. There you go. <laughs> um, kind of switching gears here to the offensive side of things. And, and I think since to transition it from the mound, we, we were just talking about Peyton Tolley on the mound. Obviously, offensively, what he can do, hit 13 bombs with Wichita State, as you said, the, the big name in the transfer class. Kind of talk a little bit about what you've seen from him and, and what makes him so exciting to kind of just plug in to the middle of that lineup, a, a lineup that was obviously outstanding last year but lost several guys, uh, a couple to the draft uh, in high rounds. So to get a guy like that, how much does it mean for this lineup? I think it means a, a tremendous amount. I mean, you lost – 26 home runs last year in Braden Taylor, another 17, I think, with Cole Fontenelle. And and so TCU needed a source of power in the heart of that lineup. They still have Curtis Byrne, who hits for uh, some pretty good power. And sophomores like Anthony Silva and Carson Bowen are taking a step in that direction in their second year. But you needed that bona fide guy who was just going to come into your lineup and say, if you leave one over the middle, it will leave this ballpark. And Peyton Tolley's that dude. They're refining his role a little bit this season. So at Wichita last year, you know, he, he pitched, he played first base, he was DH. He is a pitcher and a DH for TCU. So he is not playing for, he doesn't have to worry about the defensive side of things. He doesn't have to worry about any of that nonsense. Just go hit and go throw hard. And I think that that is going to be really helpful for him this season to take just that one thing off of his plate. And he's gotten off to a decent start. Um, I think that TJ Bruce is still tweaking the lineup a little bit. And so we're, we're going to see the guys around him move. They moved Carson Bowen up to the two hole in the midweek game, which I thought was really interesting. And he actually had a pretty good day from there. Um, and so they're looking for ways to get him uh, in situations where there will be consistent presences on the base for him because they want, obviously you want your power hitter to have dudes on when, when he's up. And TCU didn't get that very consistently over the weekend. So I think we'll still see some lineup tweaks around him. He started in the four hole. My opinion is that your your best power hitter should probably hit in the three at this point. Um, but I'm not a coach and I'm not a coach for a reason. So I'll leave that to the experts. Um, but I would love to see him guaranteed in that bat in the first inning every week. Um, because I think he just brings such a dynamic presence to the top third of that lineup. And you've still got guys like Anthony Silva and um, uh, Curtis Byrne that you can drop behind him and protect him a little bit. So I, I don't know. I, we're, we're a long way from seeing the final iteration of this year's lineup for TCU, but having Peyton Tolley either in the three or the four is a really, really good start. The lineup on the whole is really, really good. And I yes. think that's uh, when you go through some of the guys that returning production and, and all the stuff that they've brought. But a guy that I circle and anybody who's been following college baseball for the last, I mean, now that we have COVID years, it could be five, six years. It feels like he's been around is Peyton Chatagnier. And I think and what's fascinating to me is watching him play is you, he wasn't a world beater ever with Ole Miss. He never put up 
you know, all American level numbers, but he's a national champion. He's mm-hmm. a four year starter. He's played at a high level at a program that winning matters a lot. And I'm assuming, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, there's a leadership element of what he's been able to bring to the clubhouse because, again, outside looking in, that seems to be the character that he is. Local guy in Texas terms, two hours east um, from my (laughs) understanding. So uh, what's Peyton Chatney brought to the table and and how good of an addition has he been uh, to the Horned Frogs? Uh, Energy, vibes. All of the things that you hope for from a guy out of the transfer portal who, um, like you said, has the experience, has the ring, and now has an opportunity to hit at the top of a lineup. I know that at Ole Miss, a lot of the times he was bottom third, hitting seven, eight, even nine at times. And the goal for him at TCU this year, look, he doesn't have to hit 10, 11 home runs like he did last year. It would be nice, but he doesn't have to do that. He doesn't have to be the guy that, uh, you know, produces, you know, 50, 60 RBIs or anything like that. He just has to go in there, get on base, which he's done really well to start the season and steal a couple bags here and there. He stole three bases over the weekend. I know that that seems out of his uh, game, like not a, a standard part of his game because he didn't steal a ton at Ole Miss, but neither did Trey Richardson at Baylor. And he stole 25 bases for TCU last year. And so I think what they were looking for from the second base position was, hey, we just need a veteran guy who we know is going to take care of his business, who can come in and bring some good energy and be a a productive guy at the top of the order. And right now he's checking all of those boxes. I think the challenge for him will be sustaining that through conference play. Um, But I mean, he, he came in and like from day one was just dancing and playing and goofing around, but also you can tell that he has, he's a guy who he walks into the room and they're like, Oh, this is a dude that's done it. And that I think is something that TCU has been missing from a player level for a little too long. And the fact that he can bring that layer uh, and that element into the locker room, I think is super cool. I was going to ask you about the stolen base thing, because I noticed that he stole three this weekend. And then you go look, I mean, he's a smaller guy. So you assume that he does run, more than you'd think but at Ole Miss he didn't run a lot is that a philosophical thing maybe at Ole Miss that coming to TCU they want to push him more because he doesn't seem like he's slow by any stretch of the imagination but some schools that have more power hitters and and guys like that like they kind of use that stolen bases like why would we give somebody an opportunity to get us out when we could leave the yard at any moment yeah it's a great question and I think we're starting to see a little bit of a shift this year for TCU, especially from a power perspective, TCU's never really been like a top to bottom, everybody can hit it out of the park kind of lineup. And so they've had to, especially under Bill Mosiello when he was still the, the the hitting coach at TCU, he loved to be as aggressive as possible on the bases. And so they recruited faster guys. They wanted guys that could steal at any given moment. And the veteran guys, they always had the green light. And I think that that's a, kind of an undercurrent still for TCU, how they approach base running. And I mean, TJ Bruce's first year last year, they set a program record for stolen bases with 141 or whatever, just a stupid number, right? And and so I think that there's always going to be an aspect of that at TCU. And I think it's a good thing because when you are putting pressure on guys on the bases, that means that a pitcher is not fully focused on where he's maybe locating his, his fastball to Peyton Tolley or to Curtis Byrne. And I just think you get so much out of 
putting stress on pitchers and defenses when you have some of that team speed. He's got it. I don't know that I don't I don't know enough about Ole Miss baseball to know if it was a philosophical difference, but I do know that at TCU they like being aggressive, and if you've got even a hair of speed, they're going to send you from time to time. And so uh, I, I mean he he showed up at TCU in his first game. He got on base five times. He stole three bases, and he scored the game winning run. So I, I I think he had a pretty good intro uh, to TCU fans, and and now the the goal is just to kind of keep it up. <clears throat> And looking looking at a couple of these freshmen, I saw that you had an article for for your subscribers at two four seven today about uh, Chase Brunson, who's been starting in center field, and, and Sam Myers, who who got a start. Um, without giving away too much of the article, what what about those guys has uh, allowed Coach Sarlus to trust him so much? I mean, Brunson obviously proved it this weekend with just the, the start that he's off to. Yeah, Brunson's an interesting guy too because he was a late add to this class. He was a Loyola Marymount commit, um, was commit, was going to go to LMU. The coaching staff turned over in June last summer. And so he decommitted, um, his travel ball coach called Sarlos and said, Hey, I got a guy for you because Brunson didn't really participate in any of the perfect game stuff. Any of the kind of, can I say pay for play? <laughs> ratings that happen in high school baseball. And uh, so he was really outside of, you know, the Southern California area, pretty much an unknown and got a call from uh, Sarlos got a call from the kids travel ball coach and said, I think I got a kid for you. They had a zoom call. The kid was hooked, committed to TCU right before he took the visit to TCU um, and then made it here in spite of being drafted in the 18th round by the blue Jays. And so, had a chance to sit down with him and talk to him earlier today, actually, just to kind of about some of that process. And um, that's what the article was about. But I'll tell you, he said it was a really hard decision, but the the culture at TCU and Kirk Sarlos was enough to kind of push him over the edge and spend a couple years in college rather than in the minors. Um, and yeah, he's been, he's been an absolute stud for TCU through four games. He had a couple of hiccups in the outfield on Tuesday night. You're going to take the, the bad with the good when it comes to true freshmen. Um, two doubles, two home runs, five RBIs, I think eight runs scored on the weekend is pretty dang good start, a pretty dang good start to your freshman career. And so um, Chase Brunson had, I think, the second hardest job of any Horn Frog this year, and that was replacing Elijah Nunez in center field. And he's done it glowingly to this point. Sam, Sammy Myers is another kid who he's just a baseball player, right? He's not, he's not a five-tool kid. Might not even be a three-tool kid, but he just knows ball, and he's fast as hell. And he got the start on Tuesday, ran like 100 feet to track down a fly ball in the first inning. First career at bat was a, a line drive single over the shortstop's head. He pinch ran on Sunday for Peyton Tolley because you got to pinch run for Peyton Tolley sometimes. And uh, so he, he's just another kid that's getting an opportunity as a freshman, and it's really cool to see them taking full advantage of those opportunities so far. Yeah, I'm super excited for what Chase Bronson is going to be able to do. I think, again, from the evaluation standpoint, especially because those guys that don't do the pay-for-play stuff, and that is a good way to describe it, um, as it they don't get the notoriety coming in as freshmen. And then you see them pop, and the next thing you know, they're first-round picks. And it sounds mm-hmm. like that's what Bronson very well – I mean, if you're tooled up enough to start in center field day one at a school like TCU, like – teams are going to be taking notice. And obviously the Blue Jays were impressed enough to nab him in the 18th. But two guys that are really highly regarded across the country in that sophomore class are Anthony Silva and Carson Bowen. They're both Team USA invites, both freshman All-American, 
Both had great years last year. Anthony Silva obviously had a hot start. He's hitting 529 as of right now with a homer in three bags. Those, I was very surprised to to look at the opening day lineup and see those guys hitting five, fifth, and sixth. But that's just kind of speaks to the depth of the lineup and being able to to roll out guys that you trust. But um, talk about those guys and and kind of the element that they bring as probably two of the more talented kids that have that have come through the program as of recently, and definitely two highly regarded guys in terms of draft circles as well. Yeah, you weren't the only one that was surprised by that. I. Again, not a coach, not the expert. Um, <laughs> I would put Silva around the number two spot because I, a guy that gets on base as consistently as him ahead of a guy like Peyton Tolley just makes sense to me. But again, not the coach. Uh, you know, I think that their start to the year, though, has been uh, a really nice carryover from the way their freshman years ended because I think Silva was a guy who everyone expected to come in and be the starting shortstop because he was so good defensively. And just, you know, when you're replacing a, an incredibly good defensive um, shortstop like the, the Frogs were with the departure of Tommy Sacco, okay, well, we've got this kid who's coming right in. He's going to fit that bill. He hit incredibly well the back, you know, three quarters of the year, really. I mean, it took him a, a game or two to get adjusted to the college level, and then he was just smooth sailing. So to see him pick up where he left off, I think, is really good because typically – you see a guy have a soft, a little bit of a slump sophomore year because the book's out on him. People know how to pitch him a little bit. And he got pitched some pretty interesting ways over the weekend, and he still handled it incredibly well. Um, so I think that's a testimony to the work he put in in the offseason with T.J. Bruce to just get right and, and get ready to take that next step. With Carson, You know, he missed most of the fall because he had shoulder surgery. He had a handmate bone issue with his hand. And so he didn't get a ton of reps at all in the fall. Um and that's coming off of a freshman year where he caught 54 games when he wasn't expecting to catch, you know, 25 games. And so the goal for him this year, and, and you, you probably saw a little bit about this. He's playing catcher. He's also going to play some first base. Curtis Burns going to catch and play first base. And they're doing this to try and preserve both of them to be able to play all year. Cause Byrne hurt his back was out for a good amount of time last year, which is why Carson caught so much. Carson was out for the fall, so they added like three extra catchers in the offseason just to make sure that they had the bodies. Um, but it, it's I think what we're going to see from Carson this year, to kind of get back to your question, is a kid who hopefully is going to not only develop behind the plate, but also develop into a, a, def- a good defensive first baseman while taking a step forward with the bat. And so he's got a, he's got a tall task ahead of him. But he started off, again, uh, all of the bats in this lineup really started off well this season i mean 40 runs through the first four games and bad and um you know he's he's seeing the fastball really well he's staying back on the off-speed stuff really well i think three or four of his singles this uh over the weekend were opposite field um on an off-speed pitch which i think shows a really good sign of maturity for a hitter who's entering his sophomore season and um so, you know, you, I mean, you talk about those two guys, uh, TCU's fan base has just absolutely fallen in love with those dudes from day one. And now to see them kind of growing into these roles as sophomores has been really fun to see. What, what's the ceiling for a guy like Carson Bowen? Because I just think, you know, you talk about someone who, who as you said, was kind of thrust into the role at such an important position. Um you know, catching is, is, is incredibly difficult, especially for freshmen. The game can just speed up on you so quickly. So for him mm-hmm. to step in and get that experience last year and now kind of be settled in as a sophomore, as you just spoke to, what do you see as the ceiling for him? 
That's a great question. Um, I mean, D1 had him as one of the top, I think, 25 catchers in the country to start the season. Um, and I think that the ceiling is, you know, somewhere top six, seven rounds of the draft, probably. Um, I think he's got all of the tools necessary to be a really good pro catcher. He's got the arm. He understands how to, how to you know, uh, work with a pitcher and call a game. Um, and I think he's shown enough at the plate at this point uh, to, to show that he could be a capable hitter at the next level too. Fortunately, he's got, he, he's not like Silva. Silva's 21 this year. So he's going to, he's, he's draft eligible. Carson's got another year to kind of get some of that under his belt. And I think one of the really cool offseason additions that I haven't mentioned yet is the fact that Evan Skaug is back as a student assistant. You know, one of the great catchers in TCU history is now back working with a guy who has the potential to be another great catcher in TCU history. Um, and so he's learned a lot from Skaug this offseason, just about a mental approach to the game, um, <clears throat> how to handle high pressure situations. They've talked a lot about Omaha, a lot about Omaha this offseason. And so I think Carson mentally is as prepared as he's ever been. Um, and I think that that's going to pay huge dividends for him moving forward. So let's transition into this weekend. Obviously, this is the, the big weekend that we were, we've all circled. I'm sure that has been circled in Fort Worth since the schedule was released for a lot of people. I'm sure that you said the weather is going to be great, 75 mm-hmm. and sunny. They're going to pack that place out. It's going to be a lot of fun. UCLA is coming to town. Uh, UCLA is coming off a 3-0 sweep of Gonzaga. Gonzaga is obviously a, a pretty solid program. So being able to have those three wins – surprisingly it was a little bit more offense than pitching, which we've become accustomed to UCLA being a little bit more pitching dominant than offensive dominant. But what are your kind of expectations and what's the talk around uh, the team about this opportunity that's going to be on a national stage in terms of uh, people paying attention to and an opportunity to, to kind of maybe kick away the, demons from last weekend of people saying that maybe this team isn't all we cracked it up to be, but also a great opportunity to challenge themselves early. Yeah. I think they, I think they've got all of that on their mind. And uh, you know, when you have a team like UCLA coming in who didn't have the season they wanted to have last year, and it feels kind of like they're out to prove a point this year, um, this would be, you know, uh, a weekend where I could, I could really see either team winning this series. I think the, the key for TCU though is those starting pitchers have to get deeper into the game because the bullpen, as deep as it is and as good as I think it can be, I don't know that you want to really test its metal against a, a lineup like UCLA's, especially when they've got two dudes up the middle who are some of the best overall players, I think, in the country. And um, so I, I just I think the goal for TCU, get those starters deeper into the game, show that the the power in the lineup wasn't a fluke because of a windy weekend in weekend one. Uh, and then also, hey, there were there were moments, uh, there were stretches where this lineup kind of faded at times. In the middle of those games against Florida Gulf Coast, they saw 12 straight sat down in the game against Texas State. Show, show us that you can be a little bit more consistent in putting guys on base, getting guys in scoring position. Um, that'll go a long way, I think, to easing some of the concerns that TCU fans had after weekend one, which should there actually be that many concerns after the first weekend of baseball? I don't know, but I think it would go a long way to, to, to settling some, some feelings down. 
It doesn't feel like the recipe they used last weekend with those comebacks against Florida Gulf Coast would really kind of – you wouldn't get the same outcomes this weekend against a program like LSU or UCLA, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's never good to be down seven runs to somebody, and being down seven runs to a top 25 team typically doesn't work out well for you. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think it was nice to see that this team has a level of grit that allows them to come back, but relying on that, Time and time again, eventually that well is going to dry up and you would hate for it to dry up on a weekend where you've got such a prominent uh, program coming into town. Yeah, no, that's it's awesome. And, and it's going to be a fun weekend, obviously. What are some things that are you just excited to get out there and enjoy 75 degrees in good college baseball? Is that the main thing you're looking forward to this weekend? Yeah, you know, I. I wouldn't mind it if a game ended before four hours because TCU put up some marathons over the weekend. That's what happens when you combine for 20 runs a game. Um, so getting out of there on time wouldn't be too bad either. But I think I think I'd really like to see, um, like I said, the pitching get deeper into the games. And then I want to see what Chase, Br- Chase Brunson does in weekend two. He had a great first weekend. Now he's got a second weekend coming up. You know, we've talked about, we talked before we hit record about how long a baseball season is. Um, Let's see if the young kid can uh, put it together two weeks in a row. And then the last thing that I'm really looking forward to seeing, you know, there was this huge competition at third base to try and quote unquote replace Braden Taylor. Obviously, you're not going to just sub a guy in and, and have a replacement for a first round draft pick. But there was a pretty healthy competition between three guys at that position all fall. Um, they gave the nod to the true freshman Ryder Robinson on Friday and Sunday on Friday and Saturday, the Pepperdine transfer, Jack Basier got the nod to start on Sunday. And the guy who's been here all along, Brody green is the guy who came in late Sunday had a couple key defensive moments, had some big hits, and then got the start on Tuesday. And Sarlos noted after that game that he's going to be the starter moving forward. So I'm excited to see how Brody Green does in his first weekend as the guy at third base and just to see kind of how he responds to that opportunity. Love to see a guy that's stuck around the program start to have some success and an opportunity, especially in this uh, this era of college baseball mm-hmm. where he probably could have been a Division II All American for three years at some at some small school out there. So uh, that's that's always awesome to see. Well, Dan, do you have any closing thoughts or anything about the weekend that that you want to get off before we we let Jamie get out of here? No, but I will say, starting to, when guys talk about being unhappy, when you get your opportunity and go five for seven with two doubles, that definitely uh, that's how you win the job. <laughs> it sure is. And hey, I mean, TCU had five errors at that position before he stepped in on Sunday afternoon too. So having a good glove doesn't hurt either. That's very true. Yeah. Well, Jamie, we appreciate it as always. I hope this is one of many conversations that we're going to have throughout this season. Um, hopefully as we watch TCU play deep into deep into the season and even hopefully getting out to, to Omaha potentially and, and playing as long as possible. So plenty of conversations. But if you want to tell our listeners where if they want to get more TCU baseball stuff where they can find you, I think that'd be awesome, awesome for them to track you down wherever they can. And I appreciate that. You can follow me on Twitter or X or whatever it's called now at Frog Preacher. That's where I do most of my uh, social media ing. Uh, and then you can go to hornfrogblitz.com, part of the 24 7 Sports Network. It's where I'm writing about TCU baseball all the time. I think I've, I think I've written like 16 or 17 things in the last seven days. So tons of baseball content over there. Frog fans love it. If you've got a VIP subscription over there to any of the other sites in the network, you can access all my stuff for free as well. So um, head on over to Hornfrog Blitz. 
When you start seeing a Georgia Bulldogs account start popping up trolling you, you're just going to know that it's Dan. That's all it's I'm going to say. So. <laughs> right, just don't don't mention the natty, and we'll be all right. Fair enough. <laughs> you got a deal. <laughs> well, we appreciate it, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in. As that will conclude our episode for today. Make sure you're subscribing to the podcast on all podcast platforms, including Apple Pods, Spotify, and anywhere you find your podcast. Check us out on YouTube. We have a ton of great content on there as well. Make sure you're subscribing. Subscribing's for free. doesn't cost you anything, so making sure you're helping us in any way you can. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at BacksideGB, Instagram at BacksideGroundBalls, and TikTok at BacksideGroundBall. And most importantly, make sure you're sharing with five friends, and we'll see you next time on the Backside Ground Balls podcast.